going to talk today just briefly. I'm going to give you two main things that we're going to go after today, just so you can kind of be looking for them as we go. Number one, we're going to be talking about the recovery of the home and what the home was always meant to be, understanding it from the book of Acts and kind of relating it to what the home can and should be in the day that we live in. Number two, we're going to talk about the importance of Christian community, a community that is driven by a Christian ethic, that is driven by a Christian worldview. We're going to talk about the power of that type of community to transform culture. So as we jump into the first one, the redemption of the home, and this might be sound a little interesting, maybe not something you've heard someone talk about before, but the power of a home. And I realize that many of us in this room actually maybe live off campus and have community houses. You might live in a home with just your family. Many in this room are living on campus and your home is currently a dormitory. But what I want to share with you, I believe, pertains to all of us in terms of our understanding of God's perspective of home and the tool for the kingdom that home was always meant to be. Now, I've been reading recently one of the courses that I'm in, um, a book by a man, a man named Dr. Stark, and he's a sociologist who tried to put together the first 300 years of Christianity from a sociological perspective to understand how it grew so fast. And the premise you hear a lot of times, or just uh, people kind of giving their opinions, is that the church in the early church, Book of Acts, and into the first 300 years of Christianity, grew because of a massive kind of supernatural explosion of Christianity, or number two, from mass conversions. And Dr. Stark, this sociologist slash historian slash archaeologist, you know, that has put all these principles and, and all of these uh, disciplines together, set out to show that it actually was wasn't just supernatural growth, unexplainable in other words, it wasn't just mass evangelism, that actually you can look back at the growth of the early church and recognize that God could do the same thing today, that there were, there were multiplicational patterns, there were, there were things that were actually obtainable in any day, in any hour of Christianity or any hour of history. And this is what he found as he looked at those first 300 years. In those first 300 years, Christianity grew 40% every 10 years for 300 years, which is an astounding growth rate when you look at the persecution of Christianity, when you think about that Jesus really left behind, you know, between one and 200 faithful followers, and that somehow those one or 200 faithful followers were able to multiply at 40% growth rate every 10 years for 300 years. So much so that by the year 300 AD, the Roman world was 60 million people, which was a huge percentage of actually the known world and the known population at the time. 60 million people lived in the Roman Empire, and 6 million of them were Christian by the year 300. Christianity was 10% of the population by the year 300, growing at 40% every 10 years, which is astounding, and now was 10% of the entire Roman Empire. Now, what's even more astounding to think about is if that growth rate had continued till 350 AD, 50 more years, just 50 more years, the population of Christianity would have been 33 million believers 
and it would have been 56% of the Roman Empire. Think about that, okay? This is just normal growth rates. 40% until the year 300. At that point, the growth rate dropped significantly. Had it not dropped significantly, in 50 more years, Christianity would have been 56% of the entire Roman Empire at over 30 million believers on the earth, right? But something changed at 300 AD, and this is part of what I want to draw our attention to in the redeeming of the home. In 313 uh, AD, the Edict of Milan made Christianity legal for the first time in history. So it went from a fringe, kind of seen as a cult, just a, a totally different practice than paganism or Judaism by this point. It was seen as a separate and new religion. And it was largely persecuted, kind of in and out of persecution for those first 300 years, depending on the ruler. But in 313 AD, at the Edict of Milan, Christianity was legalized in the empire. It was a few years later in 323 when Constantine declared that Christianity was now the legal state religion of Rome. So it went from persecuted to now legal, meaning that it was protected by the state, to becoming the official state religion in 323 AD. At this point and in these 50 years that could have grown Christianity to a number of 33 million followers and 56% of the entire empire, the growth rate literally dropped to a barely any growth rate any longer because of some key things that happened. And here's what I want to say is when institution replaces the home, Christianity always suffers. When the institution of government or the institution of institutionalized Christianity, when the structures of hierarchy replace what was always meant to take place in the home and the family, Christianity always stops growing. Because for 300 years, we have the book of Acts as a template to the growth of Christianity. And as you've been reading through Acts, you've highlighted many times what happened in homes. And you realize so much of the early church took place in homes. You realize that homes, because the synagogue was no longer a place that believers could gather, it was the place that the Jews could gather. But early on, that division between Jew and now Christian, which was both made up of both Jew and Gentile, there was a division. And because of that division, believers were no longer able to meet in the institution of the synagogue, the institution of their day, they were forced to meet in homes. When that change in the institution happened, it was the best thing that could have possibly happened to Christianity. Because now moms and dads were actually raising their children in the ways of God. Now moms and dads were training, educating, and discipling their children. And now instead of having to get to the institution of the synagogue to hear the good news, to hear the gospel, to receive discipleship, to receive training, every home became a place of prayer. Every home became a place of worship. Every home became a place of evangelism. Every home became a place where people were trained and discipled in the ways of Jesus. The home replaced the institution. Well, by 300 AD, the institution once again replaced the home and the slow growth curve or the, the growth curve of Christianity slowly began to wane at this time in history. I feel that right now we're in a similar transition. One of the greatest redemptions of this pandemic could be the deinstitutionalization of Christianity 
and the return of the validity and the power of the home in reaching society, evangelizing the lost, and training and raising up the next generation. Now, let me give you some modern statistics to kind of drive this home a little bit more. Philip Dodge, where's Dodge? Right here, did some epic research for me. This guy's amazing. Every once in a while, I'll just throw him like a, a hard research project. And every time, he's like, the answer is yes. And I'm like, he's like, when do you need it? I'm like, yesterday. He goes, I'll do it yesterday. It's just the kind of guy he is. I don't know how he does it, but he does do it. So where are we at today in regards to the home? If we're going to redeem something, we've got to understand where it presently is. Today, we live in a society that has largely replaced almost every element of early church home activity with an institution. We are an institutionalized society by and large. Now, I would say that's especially true in the Western world far less true in other parts of the world. But in the Western world, we are largely an institutionalized society. In fact, today, by the time a child is 18 years old, they will have spent 18,620 hours with their teachers. 18,620 hours at school with a teacher by the time a child is 18 years old. Now, God bless teachers, and I can tell you, when we had to homeschool for the last month or two of the pandemic, I never blessed so many teachers in my entire life in my secret place, crying out, blessing every teacher in the learning center, every teacher in the preschool. God bless them, raise them up, multiply them, make them immune to every pandemic in human history so they continue to teach our children. My children refuse to learn from me. They've always refused to learn from me, and now it's only exactly exacerbated by this pandemic we're in right now. So God bless teachers, but I'm going to make a point about institutionalization here. By the time you're 18 years old, you spent roughly 1,872 year, uh, years, <laughs> hours being taught by a pastor or a teacher in a church. In contrast, that by the time you're 18 years old, you have spent roughly in that same amount of time, less than 200 years days, or I'm sorry, I'm going to say this, 280 hours, listen to this contrast, let me say it again so you get it, 18,000, let's call it 19,000 hours with teachers, 1,800 hours with pastors, and 280 hours with your family. 280 hours, let me explain that statistic to you a little bit more, okay, just so that we're getting the, the redemption of the home, we've got to have the state of the home. Now, right now, and this is mind-blowing, and, and Dodge did a bunch of this research for us, was if you go back to the 1950s, which would have been in the first 15 years of the introduction of the TV, the average American was spending four and a half hours in front of that TV by 1950. This was a drastic change in the culture of America. From the first invention of the TV in the late 20s, I believe it was, to now we're in the 50s, four and a half hours. In 2010, the average was eight hours and 15 minutes in a household in front of a TV in the year 2017, okay? So the day that we're living in right now. A massive change in the number of hours spent between a family versus the number of hours that were spent in front of a TV. Now a child today, this is modern research right now, is that the average 13 to 18 years old, year old will spend seven to eight hours in school a day, will spend 7.5 hours in front of a screen of some kind, which being a phone, a TV, or a laptop. That's apart from school, that's entertainment. Seven and a half hours is the average in America right now. And an average, that teenager will spend 12 minutes at the dinner table. 
Okay, come on. Come on, guys. Right now, today, that child will spend seven to eight hours in school, the institution of school, which has tremendous blessing and has a remarkable role to play in a biblical society, right? We'll spend seven and a half hours in front of a screen, being a laptop, a phone, or a TV. And today in America, we'll spend 12 minutes at the dinner table with their family. Who is raising up the next generation? What do we even see as the value of the home in the day that we live in? What do we believe is the role and the purpose of the home? Just so that we really get how shocking this is, is though that number of 7.5 hours in front of screens for kids seems outrageous, the average adult will spend 12 hours a day in front of a screen in 2020. By the time 18, uh, 18 years of their lives, they're glued to a screen, um, half of that being TV. By the time you're 65 years old, you will have spent 18 years of your life looking at a screen. By the time you come on, guys, by the time you're 65 years old, 18, 24 hour a day, 365 day a year years in front of a screen by the time you're 65 years old. This is the time that we live in. By the time you're 65 years old, you'll have spent 18 years in front of a screen. You have only spent 200 days with your family at the dinner table, according to our modern statistics. Now, that's probably not even close to true for our community, but we're never focused on just our community. We're believing for a reformation of society, and we've got to understand the lapse in society to accurately understand the reformation of that society, right? 12 minutes a day on average on at the dinner table with the family, seven and a half hours on average in front of a screen. Now, let's move to some good news. You ready for some good news? Well, sorry, one more bad news. Promise we're going good. But here, this is important principally that we would understand this because it's so ingrained in our society, we're blind to it now. We're living in many ways like the institutionalization of Constantine in the Roman Empire, where the majority of families are expecting the institution to do the majority of the work of raising our children. And that's not just in education, which, of course, education, as I stated, has a biblical worldview and purpose behind um, corporate education of children. That's right. But we do need to realize that the parents have a remarkable and more important role to educate our children than even our schools do, especially as the majority of the schools in our nation and many nations of the world are educating on 100% humanistic ideals. Your children will be more trained in the ways of, of Marxism, of humanism, of secularism than they will in biblicalism by sheer number of hours. How do we expect to turn the tide of eight hours with a humanistic teacher with 12 minutes at dinner? So we've handed the, the training of our children and the raising of them to the, to the institution of education while so much of the institution of the education is broken, which once again makes us extremely grateful for the schools that we have here, does it not? At the same time, we've done it at church. We've dropped our kids off at the most expensive and nicest Sunday schools with the biggest jungle gyms and the most radical kids programs with the biggest stuffed creatures in there and the most amazing renditions of Noah's Ark. And we've institutionalized the training of the children even at church 
instead of it happening in the home. And then we wonder why our kids are growing up with a different worldview than maybe we carried growing up. We've got to recover from these institutions what was always meant to happen in the home, which doesn't mean that every parent homeschools, but it does mean that in every home school should go on. Training and the discipling of our children doesn't mean that we don't go to Sunday school because this isn't a devaluing of one thing just so we can value another. This is valuing all of it, but it means that we shouldn't rely on the church to do what the family was actually meant to do. We shouldn't rely on the school to solely do the role that the family was meant to take. And all of that was meant to happen in the home. Think about today how much we rely on modern evangelism to reach the lost instead of realizing our homes have been the most effective way of reaching the lost in human history. We're not seeing 40% growth rate every 10 years. The home was the place of evangelism. The home was the place of discipleship. The home was the place of fellowship. The home was the place of raising children in the ways of God. The home was the place where new believers were taught how to follow Jesus. Today, and again, don't overly personalize this, but we do need to look at our broader society. Today, we've institutionalized that. I hope my church comes up with a discipleship program. I hope my church comes up with an evangelistic program. I hope someone comes and does a big crusade in my town. I hope that the church could organize something to actually reach the town. The early church went, I have a church in my home. I have a place of worship in my home. I have a safe evangelistic place in my home. I'm responsible to reach my neighbors, not the synagogue. I'm responsible to disciple new believers, not the church. And because of it, every 10 years, 40% growth, 40% growth, 40% growth, recovering the purpose of the home. Now, history is made up of pendulum swings, and we don't want to be another report of history of having swung the pendulum because we we typically do this. This is a free one. This is not to do with acts, but please allow this um, to help you in your life. We live in a society that doesn't know how to value one thing without devaluing another. So in order to make your case of valuing something, the only way you can do it is by tearing something else down. That's not biblical. That's not scriptural. That's not the way that we're meant to live. You can value something without devaluing something else. It's part of the reason we swing the pendulum, because the only way to restore the home would be to bash and completely deconstruct the church. Absolutely not. Right? Absolutely not. Or bash and deconstruct the school. No, let's not do that. Or bash and deconstruct Sunday school and go, it's all bad. Or evangelism that's done in crusades. No, 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 we're not doing any of that. We're not a people that have to devalue in order to value. That's what the world does. That's not what we do. So in order to not swing the pendulum, we become a people of wholeness, a people of fullness, a people to see validity and value in each element of this. But when we recognize this as an area that's weak, like the home, then we seek to strengthen it without having to tear down the other. Does that make sense? So in order to not swing the pendulum, we go the church has a role. Sunday school, you know, even as it exists, or children's church has a role. The school has a role. But in the midst of it, we recognize that the weakest link in the chain is actually the home. So let's strengthen the role of the home. Now, when we look at the book of Acts, I promise good news. Here it comes. In the book of Acts, chapter one, verse four, I love this. Jesus gives possibly the most important instructions of his entire life. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he says, hey, guys, I want you, uh, I want you to go be my witnesses, my martyrs, as uh, Sano and Christoph pointed out, uh, all, you know, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. I'll be with you always. But what we often forget is that the beginning of that sentence, the final instruction of Jesus, the most important, because if he doesn't say that, how does that group, what does that group do if he doesn't give them and reiterate the Great Commission to them, right? So possibly the most important sentence of Jesus' life 
happens at the lunch table. It happens while having a meal. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I had the most important thing I was ever going to say to YWAM Kona, we would gather corporately. We'd have four hours of worship on the front end, right? We would, we would have two days of fasting before you get there. No, Jesus is sitting at the table, reclining and eating and sharing a meal and fellowship. And he gives them the most important instructions they could possibly have in the home. Acts 2, Pentecost takes place in the upper room of a home. Acts chapter 9, Saul is healed and commissioned in a home. Acts chapter 10, Peter goes into a trance and has a vision that leads to the birthing of the Gentile church in a home. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit and his whole household, the Gentile church, which leads to us sitting in these chairs right now today, is birthed in a home. Acts chapter 12, the prayer meeting that loosed Peter from prison happens in a home. Acts chapter 16, the church in Philippi starts in Lydia's home. Acts chapter 18, the discipleship of Apollos, who becomes a mega leader in the early church, happens in a home. Acts chapter 20, house to house becomes the way that Ephesus becomes a major revival center of the early church. Why? Because they went home to home. Acts chapter 28, uh, Paul lands on the shores of Malta because of a shipwreck. He goes into the governor of the island's home and he heals his dad and sees a massive healing break on the out, outbreak on the island. And it says everyone who came to him was cured in a home and in a home arrest. When you think you've finally gotten Paul to stop being effective, finally shut the sky up, finally stop the spread of Christianity. They've made the mistake of putting him in a home prison. And because of it, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and he strengthens the church of Rome, which to their dying day, they will have regretted that Paul was put in a house prison because the early church knew what houses were capable of. The early church knew what could happen in a home. Now, what's the paradigm shift in this? It's subtle. The paradigm shift is this. You come to Monday night ministry night if you come with expectation the Holy Spirit's going to meet you. You go home with expectation to watch Netflix. Come on. Are you with me today? Can you go here with me today? Don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at me. Come on. You, you come to a nine o'clock Thursday morning time together with the expectation to study the book of Acts. We go home with the expectation to veg out and finally rest and finally not do anything in front of a screen, according to the statistics. We don't go home with the expectation that the Holy Spirit might meet my family tonight. We don't go home with the expectation, what would happen if we prayed together as a community house tonight? We don't go home with the expectation, what would happen in our dorm room if we turn this place into a worship room tonight? We don't go into our homes with the expectation going, what do my kids need to hear in terms of discipleship? Now again, we might in this room, but I'm generalizing the change that God wants to bring to society. We've lost our expectation to encounter God in our homes, to make disciples in our home. We think about evangelism as getting a word of knowledge for a lady at a checkout stand, which I'm a huge advocate for, but far more effective. Share a meal with that lady from the checkout stand. Pour your life into that lady from the checkout stand. Share life with her, and I promise you she'll get more than a word of knowledge. She'll get doused with the love of God and some good home cooking. 
We've changed our expectation that evangelism happens on the streets or evangelism happens in a mass gathering instead of realizing your home is the most effective tool to reaching the lost you've ever been given. It's the recovery of our paradigm. It's the recovery of what the early church looked at and went, my home is not just an oasis of personal comfort. My home is not just a place that I go and finally finish my Netflix binge of the latest show that's out there. Guys, seven and a half hours a day in front of a screen. While our neighbors have never heard Jesus, heard of Jesus. The early church saw their home because they didn't have anything else as one of the greatest weapons of the kingdom. And because of it, 40% every 10 years. Are you with me today? The book of Acts invites us into an expectation. Expectation. I just love this one because we don't say it very much. But I love thinking that Peter had went into a trance. We immediately were like, Andy's new age. No, it says it in the Bible. In his home. What is our expectation to get caught up in the presence of Jesus in our homes? I mean, I love it when Hoffa leads worship. But I don't have to have Hoffa to encounter Jesus in my home, right? What's our expectation? What do we think of when we get home, when we are in our dorm rooms, when we gather together? Do we expect to meet with God? Do we expect to disciple and go deeper? Or is it that place where we get good food, we sit down, we turn on the TV, we blank everything else out and go, no, ministry starts again tomorrow at 8 a.m. when I get to campus. Come on, guys. Are you with me? Come on. Are you with me? Are you guys really with me? In the homes in the book of Acts, we see generosity. We see evangelism. We see healing, discipleship, power of the Holy Spirit for miracles, encounters with the Holy Spirit, trances. Just had to say it again. Church started and multiplied. Worship, eating, hospitality, encouragement, breaking bread, communion, which was the remembering, the celebrating, and the anticipation of the Lord's return. And I think God wants us in this community to recover the purpose of our homes they become a place of entertainment and consumerism and they were meant to be little churches little schools little families little evangelistic centers little worship centers little expressions of the kingdom every home a place that impacts the law so what does this look for like for us on a very practical level we'll move to our second point on a practical level what would it look like right now as a community to go you know what in the next week to two weeks i am inviting a lost family member a lost neighbor over to my house for a meal we had some uh, neighbors over the other day um have an interesting uh or very interesting walk with the lord walk with the lord's generous statement and uh and we let's say, let me say i had to debrief our two eight-year-olds afterwards because they got called some names they'd never heard before it was fantastic it was fantastic it was so great to be able to explain to them that's what it means to love the lost that's what it means to love people that don't share the same faith as us and they were in tears over some of the names that they had heard and we just you know made up stuff that those names meant and didn't tell them what they really meant and figured out later but what does it look like to pull the lost into our homes and believe that that's the place they would encounter Jesus. So what would it look like in the next two weeks? Now, again, many of you live in dorm rooms and we can't necessarily bring people off the streets into our dorm rooms. It's a different scenario. Those of you that live in the community, what would it look like to turn your home into a place where the lost are reached? Beyond that, though, this is for all of us, is I would just love to throw out there that meal times are one of the most important times in the day for the building of the kingdom. 
And, and we have a lot to learn from our Polynesian brothers and sisters on this. We have a lot to learn from our African brothers and sisters on this. We have a lot to learn from other cultures that really understand the power of a meal. And now my wife's Mennonite, which I highly recommend if you're single to find a Mennonite and um, marry them for lots of reasons. And with that, she came pre-anointed for cooking, which is astounding. It's just pre-wired in that generational blessing and inheritance of the Mennonite movement. And so, you know, in my home, meals are extra blessed, extra glorious because of my wife's remarkable cooking abilities. But I would say to us that our, the, the meal time is one of the most sacred times of building the kingdom and we need to recover it again. My challenge would be to you to linger over dinner. Linger with the people with you. Go deep in conversation. My encouragement would be, what would it look like to practice frequent communion in your homes, in your dorm rooms? I don't think communion was ever meant to be something done once a month and a lot of sobriety. I would imagine that the mealtime communion was a highlight for the early church. Before they ate together, they remembered what Jesus had done. They recognized that his real presence was with them right there in communion, and they anticipated the day that he would return. What would it look like to practice frequent communion in your homes, in your dorm rooms, to redeem meal times, to be a place of community. I've often heard, you know, 20 some years of being in YWAM, uh, both the remarkable encouragement of being a part of this incredible family, and then often have heard people go, hey, I've been here this many years and I still have no community. I'm usually very graciously listen for a while. My first question is, when's the last time you invited someone to your home? And they're like, well, it's just kind of waiting to be invited. No, my encouragement would be you create community in your home. Invite someone over. What would it look like for dorm rooms to gather together, do worship night, have a game night, share a meal together, take communion together. Let's recover the purpose of our homes. For those of us with children, which this community is as remarkable as any in the world, that our homes would be a place of discipleship of our children, a place of training that, again, it might not be that we're all called to homeschool. I know that we're not. We just don't even have that anointing anywhere in our bodies. This is not anywhere in here. But I do know that we're called to do school in the home, which means there's an element of training that I'm absolutely responsible for for my children. What would it look like to fully redeem our homes to the intended purpose that we see in the early church, the book of Acts? And could it be that the church actually was pre-wired to grow, whether it's overtly evangelistic or not? Because the Christian ethic actually ends up winning the lost. The Christian lifestyle, now we're called to be overtly evangelistic. Please don't hear what I'm not saying there. But the Christianity was actually built to grow even if you couldn't be overtly evangelistic. The very ethic of our community life, our families, is pre-wired to actually win the lost. And our homes were pre-wired as believers to actually make an impact into our communities. Whether we were overtly evangelistic or not, is that it was made to grow, and that's what the early church teaches us. Now, that's number one, and at the end of this, we're going to commission our homes into another level of kingdom. This next piece I'm going to give you, let's talk briefly about the community, and we'll be wrapping up today. Now, I want to go back to one of these studies that Dr. Stark did that I was telling you about. This is not Dr. Tony Stark. I don't remember this guy's first name. 
But in 165 in Rome was the first major pandemic uh, that's recorded uh, from the time of Christ. It's believed that it was a smallpox pandemic. And in case we think this one's bad, they believe a quarter to a third of the Roman Empire died in that smallpox, smallpox pandemic. That pandemic lasted 15 years and killed a quarter to a third of the entire population of Rome. Now, just 90 years later, in 251 AD, another pandemic hit, which they now believe was measles. And that that pandemic had a similar death rate, killing many people. And here's what's remarkable. The second point I want to make is the power of Christian community to shift culture. Now, I told you about the growth rate. And one of the things that Dr. Stark points to is that one of the major reasons that Christianity grew in the early church was its response to crisis. In fact, in this case, and this was written in the 90s, their response to pandemic crisis. And I read this going, this was written for right now. Now, I want to give you two types of community that responded to this pandemic. Are you guys still with me today? Is this okay? Okay, is this too much data and stats? And is Dr. Stark too much for us? Okay. So the one response was the pagan response. The rest of Roman society was largely, which has just been called pagan, worshiping multiple gods, uh, ritual sacrifices, massive sexual immorality. And the pagan society, when the first pandemic hit, they had several primary responses. One was this, get out of Rome. So a major number of pagans actually left because of the pandemic. Number two was don't touch or get near anyone who might have the pandemic. Isolation to a point where many more people died because simply no one would take care of them. And they would die in their homes and no one would even know them. Number three is they had such a devaluing of human life. They had such a devaluing of the physical that when people did die, they just left them in homes and they left them on the streets to, to rot. So these is the response of the pagan community. In the meanwhile, they're blaming the gods. They're trying to sacrifice more. They're trying to figure out what really happened. They had no way to deal with the pandemic. They didn't take care of each other. They didn't deal with death the way that they should have dealt with it and dead bodies. And they fleed Rome in masses going, I'm just getting out of town. Now the Christians who are a growing population, but still a minority of the population, they responded radically different. And there's all kinds of amazing uh, recorded statements and accounts from this time. Is the church believed in eternal life and said that if we die, we die, but we know where we're going and we know the next life will be even greater than this life. So one, we're not leaving Rome. This is our home. And because they didn't leave, they simply grew. Number two is they had so much value for human life that when someone got sick, they didn't isolate them. They took care of them. And here's what's crazy is that someone during the pandemic that was given basic health care. I'm not talking from a doctor. I mean, basic symptomatic health care had a 60 percent chance higher of living than those who were abandoned in their homes. And there's all kinds of accounts from Roman leaders going, we hate the Christians, but they're the only ones taking care of the sick. They didn't love their lives so much that they weren't willing to die. And they cared for people who were sick. And because of it, 60% less died than in the pagan society. And number three, they had so much value and dignity around the process of death that they dealt correctly with those that died. They gave them dignity in their deaths. And because of it, the disease spread less than it did in pagan societies. Because of their ethic, 
Because of their Christian community, they grew 40% every 10 years. And at the beginning of the pandemic, let me give you this, and hopefully this isn't too much for you and you're mega bored right now, is at the beginning of the pandemic, roughly one in every 249 people were Christians. One person out of every 250, let's say, were believers. By the end of the second pandemic, in many communities, not all because the statistics wouldn't line up, many communities, Christians were now one in four because so many Romans pagans left, so many died from no one caring for them, and so many died from the spread of the disease and not taking care of those that had died. And in Christian communities, they died, but they died at a far less rate because they cared for each other. They died, they, they grew because they simply stayed and they persevered and they overcame and the growth of Christianity continued to explode because of the Christian ethic. And I want us to grab a hold of that today is that the Christian ethic is one of the most powerful forces for culture shift that society has ever seen. Let me give you another reason that Christianity prevailed among Roman pagan culture. Roman pagan culture, and it's crazy as you read about it because you're like, we're there again, had a massive practice of abortion. And I want you to not go there too much in your mind, but abortion in 200 A.D., all right, abortion in 150 A.D. with rudimentary instruments and not near the healthcare we have today. Abortion was normal if you were knew that you um, if you had more than one or two children. In fact, the Roman government would give free land to people that would have three or more children, and they still wouldn't do it. Beyond just abortion, infanticide was normal in Roman society. If you had a girl, most likely they were left to die. If you already had one girl, 100% chance that that new baby, if a girl, was left to die. So abortion is practiced, infanticide is practiced, promiscuity at every level is practiced. The legal age of marriage in Roman society was 12 years old. So promiscuity began with child, children, brides. It continued uh, in every form of sexual immorality you can imagine. We don't even need to go there. You know what I'm talking about. It was just anything goes in Roman society. Vice versa, over here, the Christians, because of their ethic, didn't abort their children. Number two, didn't practice infanticide. Number three, had a value for marriage and actually believed that it was covenantal between one man and one woman. Now, that ethic alone the infant mortality rate was drastically different between the two. These ones are over here killing their newborns. These ones are over here treasuring their newborns. They're also rising to a place of prominence. Why? Because the government gives free land to people who will have three children or more. So their very ethnic ethic is actually giving them prominence in society. The other thing is that women were treated as property in pagan Rome. And in the Christian society, women were leaders in the churches. So the entire ethic of the view of women, the view of children could not have been dr more drastically different than pagan society. Here's what's crazy for the day that we live in. All Christianity had to do was be Christian to win. But please, the power of biblical worldview is far bigger than we realize. I, I mean, no crusade evangelism. That's one of Dr. Stark's points. There was nothing mass like we think today. If we can just do mass evangelism, we'll win. He goes, they weren't doing that. He goes, it wasn't overly supernatural. In other words, unexplainable growth. He goes, it was all very natural. They simply lived Christian lives. And because they had a Christian ethic, they outgrew every other ism around them and grew to a place of prominence because every woman looked on and went, I'll have dignity if I'm with them. 
Now over here you have a surplus of men because the women are, the girls are killed as babies. So you have a massive population of Roman men and a, my, a minute population of Roman women, which led to all kinds of different forms of sexual immorality. Over here, because women have value, you have more women in Christianity than men. So what happens? These women start marrying men who are pagan because they had no one else to marry. And statistics show again and again and again those pagan men became believers because of those women. All Christianity had to do to win was be Christian. This is the power of community. Now, come on, are you guys tracking with me on this? We look around at our society right now, and we see elements of everything I just said was in Roman culture and only growing. Infanticide in America and in the West is knocking at the door. It's already, it's already knocking at the door. It's already being, you know, it's already being propped up as the right thing to do in certain cases. Abortion off the charts, sexual immorality, anything's going right now. I promise you it's not long till they try and lower the age of marriage. I promise you. Well, it's just to look at the slippery slope we're on. It's not that far away. Uh, recently at a TEDx talk, a person stood up and said pedophilia is a completely normal sexual orientation. And at the end of their speech, everyone in the room clapped. Rome! It, pedophilia? In our day? How? And we see all that, we go, well, how are we going to overcome? And sometimes we adopt the wrong strategy. Sometimes we waste energy in areas we shouldn't. Here's what I want to propose to you. We win if we stay Christian. Here's what I want to propose to you. Your ethic is your victory. Your community ethic is your victory. Us standing together and actually living the Bible prevails over time over every ounce of paganism the world would throw at us. This is good news. For Christian community. And I'm going to end with this, more personal, more applicable, and we'll be done. Ten minutes. Is Three years ago or so, we were in the middle of our financial crisis, and this will, be, it will end very personal and applicable to us right now. And in that, uh, the, the, I remember I was on a trip, and the crisis was massive, and it had to stay completely hush-hush because the FBI was getting involved. I was part of leadership, but I was traveling. It was so um, sensitive. Nobody could call me. No one could email me. So when I got back, they told me what had happened with the financial embezzlement. And that night, I had a dream. And it, for me, was a, one of those defining dreams that helped to mark and give a clear directive into a new season. And in that dream, Paul Childers and I were holding on to a rope. It wasn't super long. It was maybe this long. Two ends of it. I had one end. He had the other end. And we're standing there at the beginning of the dream, just kind of looking at each other, holding the rope. All of a sudden, a massive sandstorm begins to sweep around us, just like a hurricane of sand. So much so, it, I remember in the dream, it hurt the way the sand was hitting our skin it hurt and then we began to get pulled apart by the storm and then it was so violent I could no longer see him all I could see in front of me was sand and I just remember holding on to this little rope getting my skin pelted by sand feeling pulled away by the force of the wind and I could no longer see the, the pole on the other end of that rope then the sand subsided it literally just went just dropped and we were standing there still holding the rope and then a narrator which I knew to be the Holy Spirit God knows I'm slow I'm kind of thick in the head he goes I'm gonna have to narrate this whole thing for you if I don't tell you what it means you're you're hopeless so and maybe Amy was traveling so he knew I was double hopeless so so literally a narrator in the dream looks and he goes if you will hold on to this rope in the midst of the storm and never give up he goes you will be known for these four things your community will be known for these four things he goes you'll be known for unimaginable power Unimaginable, he used. Unimaginable power. You'll be known as a community that is teeming with life, was number two. 
He said, number three, all unbelief will be removed from the community. And number four, families and mentorship will lead the way. And then the dream ended and I woke up. I look back, you know, and at that time, certainly the embezzlement we were going through is a major storm. And I look at the way God brought us together in the midst of that. I believe we're in another one of those storms. And I don't know which the dream talk, which the dream was talking about, probably both. But we're in a storm. And the idea is, is that culture and the lies of the enemy would do anything to seep into our community that we would be a little bit just like everyone else. Not as, not as you know, um, as, as uh, concentrated. But how many of you know, if I gave you a whole cup of poison, you'd be like, I'm not drinking that. But how many of you know, if I gave you a cup and said, no, there's just a trace of poison in it, you wouldn't drink it either. So it's not just like, well, we're not totally like the world. No, 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 we can't be at all like the world. It's not like, well, we're just, we're a better version than that. No, 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 it's not about being a better version. It's about being a biblical version, right? It's about truly living our Christian ethic and not allowing the wave and the war of culture to affect us. But like the early church, 40% every 10 years restored the home, held on to their Christian community. They began to influence culture instead of culture influencing them. We're in a day right now of a great storm raging around the world. We're in a day right now where division would want to seep in, and yet God has a solution. Hang on to the rope and don't give up. Guys, this is a time where we band together like never before. This is a time where we allow the pandemic, we allow the crisis of our day to actually pull us closer. You could say that one of the greatest gifts the early church had was persecution. It forced them into depending on each other. How many know you're not dealing with trivial issues when your life's at stake? It's only in the vacuums of boredom that we start over analyzing each other, right? It's in vacuums of boredom that we start overly complaining or overly becoming cynical. No, no, no. When there's persecution that's real, trivial issues don't matter anymore. And we begin to bond together around the common bond of unity. And I think we're in a day right now where God wants to unify us once again. When I, and I say that, I say that to a community that I think is one of the most remarkable communities in the whole world. I honestly mean that. What an honor to be a part of this family. But I also say that saying there's more and let's go for the more. The battle is intensifying around us. And as we redeem our homes for what they are called to be, like the book of Acts, and as we go after true biblical community, I believe that we will see a strength in this community that has the ability to shift culture instead of be shifted by culture. In Acts, we don't see a perfect community. We see conflict, disagreement, lying, compromise. It's far from perfect, but it is effective. We see forgiveness, generosity, deep love, connection, continually commanding each other to love one another. It's constant. It's one of the main commands of the final books written in the New Testament. Peter, John, they're always saying that how important it is that we love each other. And as we wrap up, as we look to the future, I believe that God wants to give all of us a vision for homes that transform society and for a community that can turn the tide of the culture war that's going on all around us. That's my sense. That's my hope. That's my invitation to us on a very practical level. If there is one thing I feel, and we're going to wrap up at 1025 on the dot, if there's one thing I feel that could try and take us out in that, it is the cancer of offense. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 
Proverbs 18, 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and quarreling is like bars of a castle. But 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I speak in the tongues of angels and of men, but have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I surrender my body to the flames and give all that I possess to the poor, but have not love, I am nothing. And it goes on to say, love is all of these descriptors of a person who is unoffended, quick to forgive, full of mercy, full of kindness. And I think in this hour, I feel for me personally, God is holding me to a short account in areas of offense saying, Andy, you can't let an ounce in your life for where you're going. For where I need to take you, there is no room for offense. Why? Because love is patient. Love is kind. does not boast. It is not evil. It does not proud. It is not self-seeking. It is not ambitious. It is quick to forgive. Love is free of offense. And I think part of what God is taking us into is the celebration of a a offense-free community that is fighting for the call of God on each other's lives. In our diversity is our beauty. In our diversity of standing together is our strength. Our diversity is our breakthrough. And as we step into being an offense-free community, we become a community that God can use to do anything. My encouragement to you in this season as we look at the book of Acts and community is allow the Lord to root out and search any area of offense. What I'm not recommending is you have to go to that person and tell them you were offended. I'll have a huge line behind me after this. I can't tell you how many times we've had moments like that. I got an email once said, hey, There was a bunch of us talking the other day. We're all really offended at you, but I want you to know I'm apologizing. I was like, wow, thank you so much for that email. (laughs) I'm not saying you got to go to that person with your offense. You got to go to God with that offense. Deal with it. Get offense free. Get to a place where we are holding the rope, fighting for the call of God on each other's life. Here's what I would say is that we want to be a people that say no to offense, that say yes to love and repentance. Be a community that says no to gossip and says yes to encouragement. Be a community that says no to critiquing and says yes to growing together in the midst of our weaknesses. Be a community that says no to cancel culture and says yes to commitment culture. Be a community that says no to dogmatism, which is heels dug in on my opinion, and yes to listening, humility, and learning together. That we would not be a community affected by culture, but we would be a community that affects culture everywhere we go. Why don't you guys stand? We're going to pray as we wrap up here. How many of you have a home or a dorm room you want to commit to God today? The redemption of the home. Raise your hands high. Keep them above your head. Lord, we commission every home and every dorm room, every person whose hand is raised for the redemption of our homes. We thank you for leisure and rest. That's godly and that's kingdom. But Lord, we want to restore that in a place of familiness, in a place of love. Father, we commission our homes to be places of evangelism, training, discipleship, worship, joy, fun, laughter, food, communion, remembering, anticipating, Lord, that our homes would be a place where the kingdom rests, God. Recover that all over Kona, these dorm rooms, the same way that our homes would not be a place of of hiddenness or a place where things can be left in the darkness or a place where we're simply in front of screens all day, Lord. Little screen time, no big deal. But Father, redeem our homes like the early church. 
like the early church. So I pray right now, commissioning on every home, just like that home is a battleship sailing into war, sailing into breakthrough, that that home is a city on a hill, a light on a hill, Father, ready to bring change to our neighborhoods, to bring hope to the lost that are just waiting for the message of Jesus. And number two, if you guys are with me on this, let's just say yes to these things. I'm going to say them and just give a big hearty amen if you're in for it. We say no to offense and yes to love and repentance. All right, here we go. We say no to gossip and yes to encouragement. We say no to critiquing and yes to growing together. We say no to a cancel culture and yes to a commitment culture. We say no to dogmatism and yes to listening, humility, and learning together. And we say yes to living a vibrant, anointed Christian ethic in our community that transforms society around it. And in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Awesome. Amen and amen and amen. Love you guys. Let's go after this together. Encourage someone today on your way out. Give them hugs, lots of hugs, social distance, masked hugs. And um, let's help pick up the chairs. The racks are in the back. And uh, we'll see you guys Monday morning. Keep reading two chapters a day. Next week, we're going to talk about local impact and outreach. Love you guys.